Hi, I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. In this podcast, we get together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. One of the parts of this everyday life is our twice-yearly Scripture, Faith, and Scholarship seminars. For these seminars, we bring in speakers to talk to the ICS community about the intersection of their faith and their academic and community work. Back in January, Dr. Keith W. Carter joined us from Valparaiso University in the Chicago area to talk about these dynamics and his latest research. The talk was called The Rise and Fall of American Social Christianity, The Spiritual Origins of Our New Gilded Age. Gideon Strauss interviewed Dr. Carter, and we're sharing this seminar with you now. Welcome to the uh, Institute for Christian Studies uh, Scripture, Faith, and Scholarship Seminar. This is an event that we host every term uh, in which we invite a scholar to have a conversation with us about their scholarship and then to have a conversation uh, about the role that Scripture and Faith plays in their scholarship. So it is my pleasure to introduce uh, Heath Carter to you. Heath is uh, uh, teaches history at Valparaiso University, which is a couple of a couple of hours south of Chicago. Just an hour, hour, hour southeast. Yep, hour southeast uh, of Chicago. He is uh, in Ontario because he was awarded the 2018 Emerging Public Intellectual Award at Redeemer University College, a school with which some of you would be familiar. Um, and that award was awarded to him by um, everybody. Um, I think the award-giving consortium includes the think tank Cardas, uh, the Center for Public Justice in uh, the United States, a center at Redeemer University College. I don't know if the Christian Labor Association uh, is one of the award-giving agencies, but it supported the event yesterday, the award-giving event, and responded to that. Uh, But so we have the privilege of being with an emerging public uh, intellectual uh, today. Heath uh, is a very active author. Uh, He is, uh, among a number of other books, the author of Union Made, the author of The Pew and the Picket Line, and he is working on a book uh, that's forthcoming on the theme of social Christians and the fight to end American uh, inequality. And now... Okay, very good. Well, yeah, thank you, Gideon, and and, uh, Hector Ferrer also, I think, was involved in helping to to pull this together. So really grateful to be here with you all. 
and to to think a little bit together about um, the story of what I think is a really important tradition in American life and in the history of American Christianity. Uh, American social Christianity may not be a super familiar phrase. Um, social gospel is probably a little bit more familiar, and and I'm using those terms. Uh, Somewhat synonymously, though, though uh, intentionally using social Christianity as a term that's a little bit broader, um, as you'll see. I want to kind of, I'm writing this book right now that, that recasts the history of the American social gospel, which has often been thought, you know, sort of tied to a liberal Protestant um, Walter Rauschenbusch kind of figure. Um, and, and I think someone like Rauschenbusch is important, but um, as you'll see today, I want to try to sort of think bigger picture um, and expand this category a little bit so we can see whether that works. Uh, it's also a story, though, that I think is of interest to folks who are not, I hope it's of interest, you, you can tell me, uh, uh, to folks who aren't scholars and who are just uh, either Christians or people who are concerned about um, the really significant spike in inequality. Um, it was interesting last night being at Redeemer and thinking a little bit about some of the differences between the U.S. context in the Canadian context. I'm going to be speaking mainly about the U.S. context today, so it could also be interesting to think a little bit together about some of the comparisons and contrasts. So, uh, without further ado, uh, we, we are living right now through what people in my field, um, historians, but also economists, are, are calling a new Gilded Age, an era that is nothing short of historic when it comes to inequality. And there are a lot of ways to measure this. We historians don't do a lot of charts, but we're grateful to our economist friends when they pull these things together for us. Uh, and you can see this is the kind of thing that we mean by a new Gilded Age. So this first chart measures the percentage of total pre-tax income commanded by the top 1% of American earners. And this is the kind of curve that you'll see on, on many of the charts that sort of measure uh, inequality in the United States these days, where um, you know, peak inequality right before the Great Depression, where you can see that that share is almost 24 um, percent, you know, going down, down, down through the mid 20th century decades when you have these kind of massive social movements, uh, labor and civil rights movements on the march, and then back up to where we're almost to uh, those 1928 levels, uh, back up to 23 percent. Um, that's only one way to measure it. You've also got wealth, of course. And in some ways, this can be a more important measure. Here you can see the, the top 0.1% of wealth share in the United States over the course of the last century or so. And you see basically an identical pattern in terms of uh, you know, the, the amount of wealth commanded by the wealthiest, in this case, 0.1%. I think this uh, chart tells a story. So does this uh, sort of fact that... In 2017, so a couple years ago, the wealthiest three Americans, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, own more wealth than the entire bottom half of the American population combined, a total of 160 million people or 63 million households. So, I mean, that's pretty, pretty striking. Uh, I often hear when I share these kinds of numbers and we talk about inequality in the United States, the uh, response is, okay, but this is all relative. You know, there may be a widening gap between rich and poor in the United States, but even the poor here are rich by global standards. And there is something to that idea. Um, but we shouldn't underestimate the existence of real 
and in some cases, downright lethal suffering right here or just south of here. Uh, in many cities across the United States, the census tract you're born into can mean the difference of a decade or more in terms of your life expectancy. So on New York's Upper East Side, average resident lives till 85. Bronzeville, poor black neighborhood just 10 miles away. In Brooklyn, life expectancy is 74, so roughly equivalent to that in Brazil. In Chicago, closer to my home these days, life expectancy in the affluent neighborhoods of the near north side in the loop is 85 years old. West Garfield Park on the west side, uh, 16 years lower, 69 years of age, higher than life expectancy in Haiti, but lower than life expectancy in Egypt. This is true across the country. In Atlanta, there's a 13-year swing in life expectancy, depending on the census district. In Richmond, Virginia, it's a 20-year swing. Um, and even beyond those sorts of extremes, this is another uh, sort of illustration of what's what's been happening. You can see that wage stagnation is pervasive. So over the last generation, middle wage earners um, really have seen only a very marginal increase in their real wages. Um, low wage workers have actually seen a, a net decline in real wages. So that's adjusted for inflation over the course of that same period. This inequality, uh, obviously, is a talk of, of many different fields, uh, has many different sources. I want to think a little bit with you today about sort of the spiritual roots of inequality in the modern United States. And we often think about the story of American Christianity in terms of denominational conflict, the Baptists versus the Methodists, or the Missouri Synod versus the ELCA, or Protestants versus Catholics. Um, Sometimes we think about it in terms of divisions down the lines of biblical interpretation or theological perspective. You've got the fundamentalists versus the modernists, the evangelicals versus the liberals, so on and so forth. And those, those stories are certainly important. They continue to shape uh, my field of American religious history. But I think they miss another sort of central fault line in the history of American Christianity. And that's a, a fault line that cuts straight through denominations and across these theological camps. And that fault line is the moral status of inequality. For more than 150 years, American Christians have been deeply divided about not just the sources of inequality, whether it comes first and foremost from individual failings or from social structures, but also about whether Christians desiring to be faithful are obligated to join the fight against inequality. So I want to think a little bit, offer a little bit of an overview today of those battles over the moral status of inequality as they've taken shape in the hundreds or so years from that first Gilded Age to our own. I think you'll see they, these battles have often involved, I think, a kind of tug of war between church leaders on the one hand and believers at the grassroots on the other with every one of those parties well aware that struggles over the meaning of Christianity for the modern world have major implications, not only for the churches, but um, in the United States, where even today, uh, 70 plus percent of the nation's citizens identify as Christian, uh, they have implications for the nation too. So I see this story unfolding in four distinct kind of eras. I'm going to use those to structure my presentation. Um, I am going to use this term social Christianity, and, and I'm using it to think about a tradition within the larger story of American Christianity, tradition of believers who fought for a more egalitarian society via reform of systems and structures. 
these phrases, like I said, this phrase has often been used to talk almost exclusively about a school of early 20th century liberal Protestant theology, but I'm going to use them more expansively, and we can talk more about that if we want in the conversation to follow. So the first era is uh, right after the Civil War, you get several decades of grassroots uprisings, um, taking us all the way up till sort of the turn of the 20th century. Throughout this initial uh, early Gilded Age, the first Gilded Age, which saw unprecedented levels of wealth generation, but also the opening of a yawning chasm between the experiences of the rich and the poor, Religious institutions, and in particular the Protestant churches, the Catholic Church to some extent too, which commanded unrivaled cultural power, uh, championed a classical liberalism that attributed widespread poverty to the sins of the poor. So a case in point is this guy, uh, David Swing. I don't know if you've heard of David Swing. He is best known in my field um, as a path-breaking theological liberal. He uh, was brought up on trial in the early 1870s, really kind of run out of the Presbyterian church for his low view of biblical authority and for his reinterpretation of historic Christian doctrines. But during those very same years in which Swing was running into a lot of trouble uh, for his theological explorations, he was making a great name for himself as a ferocious opponent of labor. This is where, again, the story about inequality cuts right through these stories about fundamentalism and modernism. Um, this is what Swing had to say in the midst of one particularly severe economic downturn in the 1870s. He said, quote, the conflict between classes in the cities of our country is not a conflict between labor and capital, but between successful and unsuccessful lives. In contrast with feudal Europe, the United States was, in Swing's estimation, a land of opportunity one in which the poor were without excuse. He went on. The reason is the man who raves about the relief fund is not in as easy circumstances as, for example, George Armour, one of the uh, sort of captains of industry in the late 19th century, is because he did not come here 30 years ago and heave trunks at a hotel and invest each $10 in a town lot. The reason why Mr. Hoffman's poor man is not wealthy as Wirt Dexter, a well-known attorney, is because he did not go to a country school as Dexter did and then bend down to 20 years of bondage at the law, studying cases far into the night. Holding fast to a vein of kind of antebellum, so before the Civil War, conventional wisdom, Swing insisted, in our crisis, the lesson taught the people should not be that labor and capital are enemies, but that capital in this country is labor. The rich man of today was the laborer of yesterday, and before the poor man of today there lies the hope of a better future, which will come by the old way of economy and industry and intelligence. So here you have this sort of path-breaking theological liberal, um, a real fierce defender of kind of a conservative sort of status quo economics. And many, many ordinary believers beg to differ with Swing. Actually, when he died, he got pilloried in the labor papers as someone, you know, uh, just sort of taking him to task for uh, this aspect of his life's work. Um, during these same decades, so the late 19th century decades, a variety of faith-infused movements sprung up at the grassroots, protesting Swing and his ilk. Workers banded together in unions and labor federations, which were also hotbeds of dissenting Christian theologies. 
oftentimes very orthodox theologies in terms of kind of uh, historic Christian doctrines, but uh, ones that had a very different take on the implications of Christianity for the social world. Union leaders like Andrew Cameron and Agnes Nestor fought not only for shorter hours and higher wages, but also against the dominant strains of Christian economic thought. Cameron, who was the editor of the nation's most important labor paper throughout the 1860s and 1870s, wrote in one issue, it is a startling fact that the modern pulpit has arrayed itself on the side of the oppressor, has almost invariably defended the aggressions of the moneyed power, and used its high and holy mission to pervert the ways of the Lord. Now, as harsh as those words were, they did not proceed from the pen of an embittered outsider. Cameron was a believing Christian. He was very aware of the widespread associations between working class protest and godlessness, but he denied any necessary link between the two. He declared in one editorial, our fight is not against Christianity, but against those who use it as a cloak to secure their selfish purposes. And elsewhere, he wrote that the gospel of Christ sustains labor in our every demand. The volume of divine inspiration is the rock of truth upon which our pretensions are founded. So working people mount some of those movements. Middle-class women um, in these same years founded settlement houses in the poorest and most environmentally degraded neighborhoods of the nation's new industrial shock cities. While barred from the ministry themselves, reforming women such as Jane Addams and Mary McDowell were not about to wait for Protestant clergy to overcome their paralysis vis-a-vis -vis the so-called dangerous classes, these uh, immigrants who were congregating in the nation's cities and establishing their own neighborhoods sort of apart from those of the middle class. Adams, McDowell, and many other middle-class women leapt into the fray of the tenement districts, building institutions that not only met the material needs of their working-class neighbors, but also sought to incorporate them more fully into the body politic. Adams would later attribute this settlement house movement to, among other things, quote, a certain renaissance going forward in Christianity, the impulse to share the lives of the poor, the desire to make social service irrespective of propaganda, express the spirit of Christ is as old as Christianity itself. She went on to say, I believe that there is a distinct turning among some young men and women toward this simple acceptance of Christ's message. They resent the assumption that Christianity is a set of ideas which belong to the religious consciousness, whatever that may be. They insist that it cannot be proclaimed and instituted apart from the social life of the community, and that it must seek a simple and natural expression in the social organism itself. So workers, middle-class women, black freedom fighters, the radical opening of Reconstruction in the wake of the Civil War was made possible in part by the energetic labors of black Christians who at a rapid clip founded independent churches, which were themselves a profound protest against the anti-black racism so pervasive in the American South. Now, those institutions struggled just to survive, and so it's little surprise that they weren't uniformly activistic. Those who became vocal advocates for racial justice, even within black churches, often experienced hostility, not just from white citizens, but also from black denominational structures. So African Methodist Episcopal bishops Henry McNeil Turner and Reverdy Ransom championed black nationalist and socialist solutions, respectively, but at the expense of easy relationships with their superiors in the AME. W.E.B. Du Bois advanced a vision of a radical Jesus, but did so from outside the confines of the institutional church altogether. 
Black women often did not have that luxury. So Ida B. Wells found a way to navigate both white and black Christian institutions, which offered crucial platforms for her remarkable, I mean, a truly remarkable anti-lynching crusade. Nanny Burroughs helped to found the Women's Auxiliary of the National Baptist Convention, which became in turn a launching pad for a lifetime of feminist and civil rights activism. And one more uh, grassroots movement, farmers. In parts of the South and West, farmers, both black and white, joined together to express a shared righteous indignation at moneyed powers, throwing their weight behind a populist movement that briefly gained national prominence before flaming out and taking with it hopes for a progressive biracial political coalition. Their interest found an enduring advocate in the person of William Jennings Bryan, an evangelical Christian and three-time presidential candidate, whose 1896 speech at the Democratic National Convention continues to be taught in the American History Survey to this day. Wading into the thick of heated debates over the nation's monetary policy, which was, I mean, it's fascinating. You go back to 1896, this was like on the tip of everyone's tongue, monetary policy, the gold standard uh, or silver. Uh, Brian famously sided with the common man, declaring, having behind us the commercial interests and the laboring interests and all the toiling masses, we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. So these grassroots movements achieved a major breakthrough in this story of kind of Christianity and inequality in the modern United States and introduced kind of a new phase in the story of a phase of institutional breakthroughs. By the early 20th century, the nation's industrial crises and the intentional pressure exerted by these four different grassroots activistic movements had generated a serious crisis for the leaders of the nation's Christian institutions. If they did not embrace a more egalitarian gospel and fast, it appeared that they might soon um, lose any hope of a Christian America, totally forfeit their formidable cultural influence. That pressure empowered scattered reformers within the churches to leverage their relationships with ordinary believers in return for resources and platforms. And this is where you get the Rauschenbushes of the world. These were the decades, these early 20th century decades, when social gospels gained a significant institutional foothold. Nearly every denomination created boards and committees to consider and coordinate responses to a vast range of social problems, ranging from child labor and prostitution to temperance and race relations. The founding of the Federal Council of Churches in 1908 offered Protestants a powerful vehicle for cooperation on social questions. Within months, the organization adopted a social creed, which called, among other things, for the principle of conciliation and arbitration in, industri in industrial conflict, for a living wage in every industry, and for such regulation of the conditions of labor for women as shall safeguard the physical and moral health of the community. Just over a decade later, Roman Catholics established their own hub for such collaboration in the National Catholic Welfare Conference. For years to come, uh, its leaders, including folks like Father John Ryan and Dominican sister Vincent Ferrer, who are pictured together in this newspaper clipping, would devote themselves to bringing a tradition of modern Catholic economic teaching inaugurated by the Gilded Age's encyclical Rerum Novarum to the masses. 
During these pivotal early 20th century decades, social Christians, moreover, attained greater clout within local, state, and national governments. So there's institutional breakthroughs within the churches, also within the state, where they helped to promote certain kinds of egalitarian reforms. And there's no better example of this than the New Deal. The unprecedented avalanche of legislation signed by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his first 100 days alone created a larger and more interventionist federal government that the nation had ever known. I don't know if you know this, but many in the president's cabinet were steeped in social Christianity and framed the New Deal as the realization of the gospel on earth. When Secretary of the Interior Harold Ickes addressed the leaders of the Presbyterian Church USA in the spring of 1934, he drove home this point. He said Christ wanted men and women to live upright lives, but he also wanted them to have for each other understanding and goodwill and mutual helpfulness. He wished them to be good neighbors. He hated injustice with a righteous hatred. His whole life was a fight against oppression. And in Ickey's estimation, the New Deal reflected Christ's values. It is grounded on the theory that one should do unto others what he would that others should do unto him. This view resonated at the Christian grassroots. Perhaps never before had the immorality of economic inequality seemed so intuitive to so many people. But it also inspired a backlash in high places, and I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But for the time being, suffice it to say that by the late 1930s, social Christianity's influence over both church and state was receding in the face of concerted political and theological resistance its future would rest once more in the hands of ordinary believers on the ground. Phase three. During the years stretching from roughly 1935 to 1975, ordinary Christians committed to a more egalitarian society fundamentally changed the nation. Throughout the late 1930s, everyday believers poured into the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which organized workers across lines of race and gender, constructing the kind of formidable big tent union that had so long proved elusive. In the wake of the Second World War, the labor movement continued to gain steam, as did a massive faith-infused civil rights movement. Black believers such as Fannie Lou Hamer and Martin Luther King Jr. riveted both the nation and world's eye with their prophetic, nonviolent campaign for racial justice, which produced a breathtaking series of legislative and judicial breakthroughs in the 1960s. Before all was said and done, what began in Detroit and Montgomery would reverberate all the way to California, where in the 1960s and 1970s, Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez mobilized a movement of Latino and Filipino workers that brought the state's mightiest growers to the bargaining table. Marching workers carried images of the Virgin of Guadalupe and framed their protests as pilgrimages. Chavez himself had been deeply influenced by a Catholic priest who introduced him to the church's encyclical tradition, among other things. In Chavez's 1966 plan of Delano, he hearkened back to the Gilded Age encyclical Rerum Novarum, declaring, all men are brothers, sons of the same God. That is why we say to all men of goodwill, in the words of Pope Leo XIII, the author of that encyclical, everyone's first duty is to protect the workers from the greed of spectators who use human beings as instruments to provide themselves with money. It is neither just nor human to oppress men with excessive work to the point where their minds become enfeebled and their bodies worn out. Thanks in no small part to the tenacity of the farm workers themselves, 
By the early 1970s, this movement had successfully organized much of the industry. A social Christian tradition that had arisen first at the grassroots, gone through these sort of phases of institutional breakthrough, but then uh, receded back as institutions lost momentum, goes back to the grassroots where it ushers the nation to the cusp of the mountaintop, only to fall back down toward a new gilded age. So how do we get from that mountaintop to an age of nearly unprecedented inequality? This is a complex and multifaceted story, um, but I do think major shifts in the American Christian landscape help to explain current trends. This story goes back to into the 1930s as well. From very early in FDR's administration, the heads of the National Association of Manufacturers, kind of big uh, management corporate group, cultivated relationships with Christian clergymen like James Fifield, a theologically liberal, again, cutting through these uh, lines, a theologically liberal but economically libertarian congregationalist based out of Los Angeles. Fifield founded an organization called Spiritual Mobilization, which sought to defeat the New Deal by rallying clergy and ordinary believers alike to the gospel of free enterprise. Whereas FDR and many social Christians found in the Bible a plain justification for egalitarian social programs, Fifield and others of his ilk argued that the free market way was not only the American way, but also God's way. The organization soon found major boosters in both the philanthropic and corporate worlds. Groups such as spiritual mobilization struggled initially to gain traction at the grassroots, but a number of larger factors and forces would work together over time to yield a new harvest of ordinary Christian converts to the gospel of free enterprise. If you go back into the archives, you can see Fifield caused a lot of trouble within the congregational church in particular. Um, basically, anytime the congregational church's sort of social gospel apparatus, the institutional appendage of the church, um, issued a, a statement on a social question or whatnot, Fifield would uh, send out sort of a bulletin to all the people in his network, and the, the office would just get flooded with letters um, accusing the church and, and its ministers of sort of being red, commie, uh, you know, pinko commie type folks. Um, so he, he's building a movement. Meantime, uh, the Cold War. Throughout the nation's standoff with the communist and atheistic superpower, the Soviet Union, it would come to seem to more and more believers on the ground that Christianity, capitalism, and American patriotism were a trio made in heaven. Specter of violent totalitarian regimes would be raised to defeat even modest calls for economic redistribution and social welfare programs. Christian socialism, which had enjoyed a significant following of working and middle-class believers throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, became not just taboo, but in fact grounds for investigation and blacklisting. A third factor, the white response to the civil rights movement. The resistance to civil rights included an explicitly racist wing, which enjoyed strong support not only in the South, but in many Northern cities where white residents, outraged by open housing laws, often turned viciously on black neighbors. If you actually watch the, the Eyes on the Prize documentary, the episode on Boston, in the school busing crisis in Boston in the 1970s, you can see the extent and ferocity of Northern racism um, well into the 1970s and beyond. The figurehead of that uh, explicitly racist wing of the backlash was the arch-segregationist George Wallace. 
Um, and he, of course, inflicted great damage with his, his calls for segregation uh, yesterday, segregation today, segregation forever. But the long-term impact of that explicitly racist wing paled in comparison to that of an emerging white, quote-unquote, silent majority, in the words of Richard Nixon, whose unrelenting faith in meritocracy eroded support for structural approaches to addressing inequality. Its strongholds were the Sunbelt suburbs, not the South. Southern California, Phoenix, Houston. These were also increasingly the nation's demographic center of gravity. The silent majority rejected New Deal-style programs in favor of colorblind, laissez-faire policies, which contradicted many a denomination's social teaching, but which dovetailed seamlessly with the doctrines of a surging Christian libertarianism. That tension between official church positions, the social teachings that had been passed in the early 20th century, and the faithful's economic outlook was not always apparent in local churches and parishes, which were far removed from denominational headquarters. And with the 1980s emergence of a hard-charging religious right, which saw a role for the state in controlling individual behavior, but not in promoting distributive justice, any remaining whiff of tension between Christian convictions and neoliberal economics evaporated for countless white Protestants and Catholics alike. Other key factors took shape far from the realm of formal politics. Savvy entrepreneurs such as Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, would capitalize on the opportunities the post-World War II revival presented, enveloping hard-nosed labor and supply chain practices in a service ethos and faith and family-friendly brand that resonated first across the Bible Belt and before long the entire land. For countless employees and customers alike, serving God and serving companies like Walmart came to seem almost of a piece. Meanwhile, throughout the 20th century's final decades, millions of ordinary believers joined churches, which taught that prosperity came not through gritty organizing efforts, but rather through individual access to divine power. Drawing on a tradition in modern American life that stressed the power of positive thinking, preachers such as Houston's Joel Osteen argued, you can change your world by changing your words. Millions more who did not attend prosperity churches still voraciously consumed therapeutic Christianities and their proliferating products, books, magazines, devotionals, music, clothing, and more, which blended faith and self-help for a generation that took pride in being spiritual but not religious. I don't have time to connect all of these dots right now, but suffice it to say that together, these different factors, these different strands I've just described and more, transformed the imagination of American Christians. If many ordinary believers had once seen structural inequality as a sin that they were called to fight, it now came to seem almost natural, and in some cases, even God-ordained. As those older moral intuitions faded, a new refrain came into vogue. That's just the way the market works. As that logic took hold, not just in many pulpits, but also in the pews, it became clear. The dream of a more egalitarian society which had flourished first at the grassroots, had withered there too. And the impact is felt today across the United States. Arguably, nothing so dramatically underscores the diminished status of social Christianity, this mighty tradition in the not-so-distant American past, as the latter-day collapse of the labor movement. A working paper published by several Princeton economists last year underscored once more that unions remain one of the surest bulwarks 
against spiraling economic inequality. But in the early 20th century, with fully 77% of the nation's population still identifying as Christian, less than 7% of private sector workers belong to unions. For social Christians, whose visions of justice rolling down like waters had just a single generation before transfixed the nation. You can think of King, right? Uh, sort of a voice, uh, transfixed the nation and the world. Such developments, the decline of labor, really the collapse of labor, are clear evidence of a return to the wilderness. We historians are not in the business of predicting what happens next, though you can feel free. Uh, but this much seems clear. American Christians played pivotal roles in getting us into this new Gilded Age. And we are in urgent need of a renewal of Christian economic thought and practices today if, we're have, if we are to have any hope of finding our way out. I'm going to leave it there. Oh, thank okay. You. Yeah. Thank you. So I am going to continue our conversation by asking you three questions, Eve, and then we will open the floor for uh, the rest of the conversation. Great. So um, I was really uh, moved by this presentation and also by the presentation I heard you give yesterday at Redeemer University College because of your emphasis on the challenge to Christians of the current realities of inequality. My own research happens in a town called Stellenbosch in South Africa, which is by uh, some counts the most unequal town in the world. Yeah. Um, and so the, the tensions that emerge in, in uh, the social fabric of a specific community are, are very evident um, in that setting. Um, I want to ask uh, my next question against the backdrop of the reality of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Okay, sure. Yeah. Okay, so I want to make an argument that AOC, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, is the second most influential person on the planet right now. Okay. And when I listen to her or when I read her, I, I see someone making... Um, the kinds of Christian arguments against inequality and for responses to inequality that resonate with the story of social Christianity that, that you have just told. What would you say for you are things in the current moment that give you hope hmm. for the emergence of a, a refreshed social Christianity responding to the inequality that you've just yeah. described? Well, I think my, my answer to that question would fit with your uh, comment about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I get hope from young people, to be honest, and, and many of my students who um, I think have a sense of a yearning for their faith to be connected to the world in real and significant ways. Um, you know, I, I uh, was part of kind of, I'm, I guess I'm part of the last generation of Cold War kids growing up in the, in the 1980s. And um, I think as I encounter students now who have no memory at all, who, you know, were born in the mid-90s now or whatnot, um, I'm encouraged by the ways in which the passing of that paradigm, um, I mean, I remember growing up and being kind of, you know, given a lot of... Uh, you know, in, in the public schools in the United States, just learning about economics in a way that was framed and filtered through that 
um, you know, sort of battle with the Soviet Union in ways that um, I think really hung up a generation of Americans who, you know, were worried rightly about some of the, the I mean, there were serious problems, obviously, with the Soviet Union. Um, but th that became kind of the filter through which all arguments about uh, economics, distributive justice and whatnot um, were pitched. And I think that, that that's created some real difficulties. And when I encounter my students, I, I don't find them to be hung up on those same sorts of, of, of things. And so there, I find there to be a kind of refreshing openness to revisiting uh, some of these kinds of traditions that I've, I've just discussed. I mean, I think for myself, when I was doing the research for my first book, Union Made, I was pulled into that that research on kind of uh, labor and Christianity in the Gilded Age, in part because I found the conversation happening in that era so refreshingly open. Mm -hmm. And people were saying things and thinking about the implications of Christianity for society in ways that I had never really encountered. Um, so... Uh, I guess I'm, I'm encouraged by, by young people and I'm encouraged by the ways in which they are pushing on leaders uh, of our institutions. I think there's a lot of anxiety about institutions right now, and rightfully so. I mean, these younger generations are wary of institutions. Um, but I think partly because institutions have not been working very well in the United States in particular. I'll, I'll just speak to that. Um, and, uh, and it could be okay for institutions to have to sweat it out a little bit here with these young folks and to have to earn their trust. And um, I hope that they will. But I think, I think that reticence about institutions comes um, the hard way you know, as, as these young people face uh, an economic climate that is much less favorable than the one that their parents or certainly their grandparents came into. That's great. Thank you. Um, so last night you were awarded the Emerging Public Intellectual uh, Award, and we live at the dawn of the Twitter historian. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so you have historians like Kevin Cruz uh, playing a significant role, drawing on historical insights to address contemporary issues in social media uh, like that. I want to quote you from an interview that you did, not with me, but with someone else. And there is an interview that I did with Heath that you can find by simply Googling Heath Carter and Gideon Strauss yeah. uh, for Convivium magazine. But in a different interview, you said the following. You said, at the root of my labor lies an abiding interest in the gospel's implications for society. My prayer is that my work will never be merely academic but will contribute to the forging of a more just world. So how do you go about reaching beyond the boundaries of your discipline as an historian? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I guess in a few different ways. I mean, I, I think I, I have through, uh, you know, Twitter is a medium that I, I've found to be really, you know, it has its issues, but it's remarkably useful for connecting with people that you don't know, but who might share an interest or a concern or uh, values or whatnot. And so, I mean, I think, you know, if you want to be a publicly engaged scholar on a kind of larger scale level, Twitter, there's no better way than Twitter to, you know, be entering into those conversations. I found that to be immensely useful. It's a way to meet folks, uh, church folks, journalists, other scholars and intellectuals, just members of the public, um, members of leaders of unions when I was publishing my book on unions and whatnot. 
Um, so I think that that's a way to be engaged. I, I, I do a lot of speaking to church audiences, um, you know, through everything from uh, adult Sunday school hour to, you know, I speak every other summer at a Christian family camp um, in Michigan. And, and, you know, those are great opportunities to connect with people who have no expertise in, in my field or no, you know, direct ties to the academy, but who, you know, people are interested. I mean, if I give a talk, you know, on racism and American Christianity, I mean, a couple summers ago, I did this uh, series on racism in American Christianity, and it was just a, a packed room, not because, you know, it's because people have an interest in these topics. They matter, and they know they matter, and I think they're looking, they're hungry for um, those conversations, you know? Um, so uh, that's a thing, and then I would say um, one of the things that has been sort of an interesting aspect as my vocation has sort of taken shape in Valparaiso in particular is that I've been really locally engaged, and... Um, I chair uh, the city of Valparaiso's Human Relations Council and got involved with that kind of in a haphazard way. But, um, you know, we're just concerned about things happening in the city, got involved, and the mayor appointed me into this position. And so I've, I've kind of taken on a, some civic roles in my local community that are um, interesting and challenging in a whole different way. And that offer opportunities, actually, I think, to think very concretely about the kinds of things that I write about. How do institutions change? How does social reform happen? What does it take to change people's minds? And how, how do you deal with people whose minds will never be changed? Um, it's been really rewarding and interesting and challenging um, to get involved in kind of the hurly-burly of public life where you never know who's gonna show up to a public meeting. I find being engaged in those conversations to be a really rich way to um, get off my laptop and off of Twitter even and into the real world where these things are, are happening. That's great. You've said that one of the, or one primary way in which we discover and stay tuned to God's call on our lives is through community. Um, and you said, I could not do my work without the sustenance that comes through Christian community. Could you uh, talk a little bit about the role of community in your scholarship? Well, I would never have come to this whole line of research if it wasn't for community. I mean, I think through a series of relationships that developed over the course of now a couple of decades, not all of them continuous through that whole time, but relationships with mentors in college, uh, relationships at the, I taught at a, a, a Jesuit high school on the southwest side of Chicago for a year, the families that I encountered there, um, the people that I went to graduate school with, uh, the people that I've gone to church with, the people that I um, meet with now to talk about civic questions in Valparaiso. I mean, I think um, there's a pretty significant way in which my life is relatively integrated across you know, the things that I'm concerned about in my private life are also many of the things that I'm writing about and thinking about and teaching about. And, and thinking, I think thinking through these questions with other people. I mean, I feel like that has made it all the richer. Thank you all. Yeah.
And that brings us to the end of our show this week. If you would like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can find Gideon as at Gideon Strauss. You can follow Dr. Carter as at Heath W. Carter. And you can find me as at Beware the Yeti. You can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar.